Hello, everyone. So in this podcast, we are going to be examining digital journalism and media literacy. How do we combat ignorance in the digital age? First of all, what is digital journalism? Merriam-Webster defines journalism as, quote, the collection and editing of news and present for presentation through the media, end quote. Therefore, we can probably define digital journalism as information that is gathered and disseminated through digital means such as the internet. Why is digital journalism important for us? Well, we live in a digital age where information comes at us at an alarming rate, and arguably the speed of information exchange has only increased exponentially within the last couple of decades. Who knows how it will change in another decade? Our love for convenience has only fueled the wildfire that is consumerism, and that includes the consumption of information. Since we want everything quickly, our subsequent lack of patience has also affected our willingness to dismiss information that requires anything more than a single sentence analysis. We see this kind of shallow thinking all the time in advertising, where products are marketed using simple descriptors and superlative adjectives and adverbs. Sadly, this language appears to be bleeding over into our daily lives as well, both online and off. We love to use the term fake news in recent years, but when you think about it, it's nothing new. Erroneous information, or even misinformation, has been around since time immemorial. Arguably, the only thing that has changed is the speed at which information disseminates. It is important that we learn how to distinguish information that is worthwhile and that which is a waste of our time. This identification of valuable information is nothing new either. Historians identify and evaluate information all the time in the form of source analysis and critique. We need to educate ourselves on the importance of source analysis given the rapid spread of information with the rise of social media giants on the internet. Much of the issue with fake news and our need to identify it is our approach and mindset. If we fail to hold our scholarship to high standards, then we're effectively endorsing what is shallow and purely entertaining, or catered to the lowest common denominator, if you will. These high standards apply not only to our personal consumption of information, but also to our spreading of it. I would argue that censorship is not necessarily the answer, rather accountability is. We should be accountable both as publishers and consumers of information. So first of all, how can we be accountable as publishers, or what is the importance of citing sources? Your history teacher always tells you to cite your sources. They also tell you that plagiarism is bad. Well, stealing in general is bad, as is arson and murder and jaywalking, but there's always the simple ethical and legal reasons for citing your sources. However, the idea of stealing non-tangible intellectual property doesn't always resonate with people, so let's list some other reasons to cite sources. According to Jonathan Bailey, citing sources is about a number of things. First of all, giving credit where credit is due. We should understand that we stand on the shoulders of others and their work. You most likely didn't come up with the ideas on your own, and doing original research is time-consuming and hard. That's why universities hire lots of snobby people with PhDs to do the dirty work. Citations are a small price to pay for showing a modicum of appreciation for other people's hard work, and others may do the same for you one day. Secondly, it strengthens your position. Ethics and legality aside, citing high-quality and respectable sources shows that you can discriminate and critically evaluate sources and weed out the fake news, as it were. Even with real news, we find that the genuine facts can often contradict each other. It's up to the writer to determine which sources are the best and most reliable to use. So even in scholarly circles today, for example, Wikipedia is not really seen as a credible source. Is it easy to use? Yes. Is it authoritative? No. Therefore, citing quality sources improves the quality of your writing and provides evidence to bolster your stance. Therefore, anyone wishing to argue against you is effectively arguing not only against you, but everyone else you cited. You're backing yourself up with supporting evidence and bolstering your credibility. 
and you want to be taken seriously, I assume. Thirdly, you're showing due diligence. Creating a good citation shows that you can do basic research. Even if you get something wrong, it may not be entirely your fault. However, without citations, all errors are indeed on you and the result of your negligence. If you don't cite sources and someone calls you out on it, then saying, well, I didn't know, is not an excuse. Moving on, how can we show accountability as consumers of information? In other words, how to do basic source analysis and identify fake news. It's not enough for us to simply rely on media outlets to do the work for us, to do the fact-checking for us. As consumers of information, we need to hold our own scholarship and thinking to high standards and not expect everything to be spoon-fed to us. Deborah Jones, in Critical Thinking in an Online World, defines the critical evaluation of sources as determining the worth, accuracy, or authenticity of various propositions, leading to a supportable decision or direction of action. This brings us back to the issue of source analysis. While we can't expect everyone to have the skills of a professional historian, the basics of source analysis and evaluation still apply. The critical evaluation of sources is ideally a process that occurs throughout the entire research process itself. Leslie Stebbins suggests the following method for conducting research. Note that this is more geared towards academic research, but it could easily be applied to other sources of information. First step is to locate sources. Ask a librarian. Have you ever wondered why there's such a thing as a master's in library and information sciences? Well, it's because they know how to find books, articles, use databases, archives, and catalog sources with crazy efficiency. Use scholarly or academic basis, uh, databases, such as LexisNexis, EBSCO, JSTOR, etc., to locate articles and sources that have gone through a peer review process. You may need access to an academic or university library for some of these. You can track down full journal, journal articles, newspaper or mag magazine articles, government and legal documents, audio recordings, photographs, videos, etc. Now, it's important to note that thousands upon thousands of scholarly journal articles are published every year. This is partially due to the publish or perish system in academia, where professors are judged partly based on how much they publish in terms of research or scholarship, because that's one of the keys of climbing an academic rank. If you've ever wondered why some of your college professors aren't very good teachers, it's because they don't necessarily need training in pedagogy to teach in higher education. Universities hire professors based on subject matter expertise and research skills, not necessarily on how good they are as teachers. So if you have access to one, dig around in an archive. You can also use bibliographies from authoritative sources, scholarly journals, books, subject encyclopedias, etc. These sources were chosen by the author for a reason. And track down experts on the subject, university professors, etc. There's usually a network of scholars researching a similar subject that you are. The second step is evaluating sources, that is, understanding the content. You need to examine the author. Who are they? What is their background and their credentials? Have they published other works on the subject? Is their work cited in other sources? Can you determine if the author has any definite bias? The rigor of having to obtain an advanced degree aside, simply having a master's or a doctorate degree in field XYZ is not really an indication of quality or appropriateness to the material itself. Now, yes, there is a crossover in the research skills required to obtain a high degree, but that translate to, translates to scholarship abilities, not to specific knowledge in any field. So, for example, this person could have a PhD in physics, but that does not make them an expert in political science or anything else. Next up, evaluate the publisher. What kind of publisher is it? Is it a university press, commercial, government, religious, political, etc.? Based on this, you can determine what kinds of bias the publisher may have. Note the date of publication. Research and data does have a shelf life. In the hard sciences, 
The length is usually around one year, sometimes less if original research is being conducted. In social sciences and humanities, a few years is still pretty good, and classic works on the subject usually last much longer. Determine the quality of the content. How scholarly is it? Is the content accurate? Do the arguments make sense, or are there, is there faulty logic in them? Are the arguments well-supported and consistent? What is the level of writing and the tone of the language? Is it formal or informal? Do you see grammatical, typographical, or factual errors? Can you tell if the work has been proofread and edited? Check the bibliography. Does the work make use of reputable sources? Were a variety of sources used as well? Compare and corroborate the information presented. Does the information presented corroborate with other external, preferably well-known and reputable sources? How does it compare with other information that may make contrary claims? And thirdly, be engaged with your research. Knowledge isn't really gained passively, but actively. Think about what you are learning as you do your research and try to keep the big picture in mind. The longer you spend in a particular field, the more experience you gain and the more developed your research skills become. Research techniques are skills that take time to develop. They don't just happen overnight, and it can be quite difficult to become proficient at them. The more knowledge you gain on the topic, and the more you refine your research skills, then the more you'll be able to discern good sources from the bad sources. Eventually, you'll actually be able to pinpoint the really seminal works on a particular subject. Similar to Stebbins, John Spencer suggests a plan to identify fake news that he calls the five C's of critical consuming. One is context. Two, credibility. 3. Construction, 4. Corroboration, and 5. Compare. If we take any of these methods and their steps into account when examining information of any kind, then the issue of fake news becomes easier to avoid. The problem is that any number of these steps can be time-consuming. However, spending more time on critical thinking and less time worrying about the convenience of something is a small price to pay for being well-informed. This brings us to the issue of bias. Well, what about bias? Merriam-Webster defines bias as an inclination or temperament, or especially outlook, a personal, sometimes unreasoned judgment or prejudice. Every source, regardless of whether it's primary, secondary, or tertiary, has bias. Simply put, there is no way to completely eliminate bias and to make something completely objective. Now, bias does not invalidate a source, but is something to always be considered. With unpublished primary sources, it is the responsibility of the researcher to determine its value and we will discuss the pros and cons of primary, secondary, and tertiary sources in another uh, podcast. So let's discuss two types of bias, of which there are many. First is creator bias. Every creator has a particular lens or point of view. Nobody can see the entire picture. So what is the creator's relationship to the event? Did the creator have a view or purpose to express in their work? Did they create the work for personal or public use? Is the creator neutral, or did they have some special interest in the event? Was the source created on the spur of the moment or the result of careful consideration? What information or facts were omitted from their work? Did the creator see the event firsthand or was it reported to them by others? What is the creator's language and tone? How do they use it? What sort of social, political, economic, etc.? What sort of context like that are apparent? For example, an oral history is effectively an interpretation of the event. The narrator is compressing a lot of time into a few hours of talking. They're mentally selecting what they include and what they leave out of their account. Next up, let's look at hindsight bias, also known as historian's fallacy, that is, applying retrospective knowledge to the past. Now, it's unfair to assume or make judgments on participants' actions based on what the historian or researcher knows. The participant in an event, that is, in first-hand accounts, has a unique perspective that no historian has, but we cannot expect people at that time to have an informed awareness on par with that of an expert many years later. 
Therefore, be aware of the perspective when studying primary sources and first-hand accounts. Who was this person? Where were they? And what were they doing at the time? Consider the following when examining the bias of a work. The closer in time and place a source was to the event, the more valid it is generally considered. Is the account internally consistent? Does it stick to the same story? Would the creator have reasons for falsifying it? Is the account externally consistent? Does the information corroborate with other primary and secondary sources? For example, the famous Japanese naval aviator Mitsuo Fuchida claims to have been present at the signing of the Instrument of Surrender aboard the USS Missouri in 1945 at the end of World War II. However, historians such as Jonathan Parshall have been unable to corroborate his claim with any other piece of documentation. Beware of your own bias and don't read into sources what isn't there. Don't succumb to confirmation bias where you blindly accept anything that appears to agree with your interpretation. Ask yourself, how do your values differ from the creator's values? Don't interpret the creator's writing in light of your own values, but rather with knowledge of the creator's value system. Now, this is pretty difficult because you need to have that knowledge of their own value system. It could be from a very different culture from yours, so you may have to do even more research. Think of alternative interpretations and explore the cultural or psychological undertones of the text. Check with other literature on the topic and see what other researchers concluded. Use multiple sources. I already mentioned the need to corroborate the information in sources. In conclusion, regardless of the medium through which we get our information, the basics of source analysis still hold. Fake news is nothing new, but the speed and quantity of information that comes our way has significantly changed over the years. We need to be aware of bias and maintain a healthy skepticism of ideas and facts that we consume lest we begin to fall down the slippery slope that is willful ignorance. We need to be responsible as publishers of information by ensuring the use of reputable sources. We also need to be responsible as consumers of information by setting aside our compulsive need for instant gratification and be willing to look deeper into the subjects that draw our attention and examine the finer points of an argument from multiple perspectives.